I'll never forget the run I went and I ran seven kilometers and I didn't have to take a walk break. When I reached the edge of the Red Sea, I felt exactly the same. So when people say to me, I ran 5K and you wouldn't understand it, that's nothing to you. I say, no, it's everything to me. That was Ray Zahab, and this is episode 111 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Ray Zahab is a Canadian explorer, ultra-distance runner, and founder of the nonprofit Impossible to Possible. A recent recipient of the Meritorious Service Cross of Canada, Ray is an explorer-in-residence of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. In 2015, Canadian Geographic recognized Ray as one of Canada's top explorers. He has ran almost 20,000 kilometers across the world's deserts and performed unsupported expeditions in some of the coldest places on the planet. He and his family live in Chelsea, Quebec. In this episode, we talk about how Ray decided to quit smoking at the age of 30 and take up adventure sports, the personal revelations he received after winning his first ultra, the Yukon Ultra 100 miler why he loves to explore the most extreme climates on the planet at the most extreme times of year. His passion for youth, commitment to involving schools in his expeditions and his charity, the wisdom and perspective he brings as he faces a recent diagnosis of cancer, and what's coming up next, including a new book and new expeditions. Ray's buoyancy and passion for life and what he gets to do with his are readily apparent as you listen to him talk. We know you will enjoy this chat. So let's get to it. Hi, Ray. Welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. It's so great to have you with us this evening. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You know, you've been on my radar for a long time. I've been following your adventures and your expeditions. Carolyn actually had the pleasure of meeting you in person, or at least seeing you live in person several years ago. But it was actually, believe it or not, my running shoes that actually made me decide that, oh my goodness, I need to invite Ray on our podcast. I started running in Norda running shoes, which I absolutely love, by the way, I'm going to give a huge plug to them right now, this summer. And as I was like examining them, I'm like, why is Ray Zahab's name printed on the sole inside my running shoes? So I reached out to you on Instagram and let's just say that led to, why don't you come on the podcast? So it's great to have you here tonight. Can you just give us a little bit of a summary as to who you are, what you do, where you live for those people that may not know all about you? Well, first of all, you know, thanks for inviting me on and, uh, you know, I was super stoked to hear from you that you were running in the Noridas, especially the RZ well, Noridas, which is really exciting <laughs> for me. Well, um, the color, I just love the color. Like The, it was co- the colors color. are awesome. And yeah. the colors are always based on past expeditions or inspiration from past expeditions and stuff. So yeah, that's, that's really exciting for me. So what, what is it that I do? Well, you know, I tried to explain this to someone the other day. Uh, you know, I guess exploration is what I do professionally, but you know, I guide, I, um, you know, speak about my adventures. I obviously do the expeditions. I also am the founder of the nonprofit Impossible to Possible, um, where I take young people on expeditions all over the world. Yeah, I do a lot of different things. I'm a dad. Um, I'm a, I do a lot of different things, but it's all based around, you know, being outside and doing neat things. And so I guess I sort of now, here I am all these years later, I'm over 30 expeditions, 
into, you guys had mentioned offline before we started the podcast about my book. You know, I'm, I'm working on my third book right now, which, you know, sort of chronicles these last 30, I think, I think I counted actually 33 expeditions. I mean, where does the time go? But at any rate, you know, and I do these, I do these things and I, and I love running across deserts in the hottest time of year in those deserts. And I love being in the Arctic and in the colder regions of the planet in the middle of their winter, because these places are very special in their most extreme times of year, I find. And um, yeah, that's what I, I, you know, I just, I love being out there doing it. That's what I do. So let's go back, like way back before you accrued 33 expeditions for your most recent book. Plus, how in the world did you ever start doing endurance sport and running in the first place? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy story. So, you know, I didn't really start any of this until I was 30, you know, and in my late twenties, I was at a point in my life, and I've told this story often, where I, you know, I, I smoked a pack a day of cigarettes, depending on how much drinking I was doing. Sometimes that could be two packs. I mean, I just was a pretty unhealthy guy, right? Even though I was having a great time and you know, life of the party, all that internally, deep inside, I was, you know, not a happy person, and I just wanted to find a purpose or a passion in my life, and I just, I. I you know, I, I just could not figure out how to make that happen. And I'm very fortunate that I have um, an amazing younger brother who inspired me through his own pursuit of sport and love of endurance and endurance activities. And I saw in this guy, like these amazing things he was doing. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe if I did some of the things he did and I pursued the things he did, maybe my life would be different. And that kind of set in motion the rest of my life because I I would actually follow his footsteps into the outdoors. And it was a few years before I actually quit smoking that I kind of started dabbling a bit and I would get out with him on the mountain bikes, right? We'd go climbing or whatever, but nothing would really stick until I, you know, made a formal decision that I was going to change my life 180 degrees and quit smoking. And, you know, I was going to do all these things to make myself healthier and therefore, reap a reward of living a healthier lifestyle like right like it just one things just sort of fell into place and they did you know when I when I fully committed to that new life my life did change 180 degrees I'm out there on my mountain bike or chasing my brother around on the trails or 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 whatever ice climbing we were passionate ice climbers and um you know doing these kind of sports that required a, a certain level of fitness you know to do and um that's how it started. It like that really started. It started with a decision and a desire to no longer be this person that I was living as. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it wasn't about you know trying to I don't know. It was it was it really wasn't about anything else other than that. Just trying to find passion in my life, and I certainly mm-hmm. found it. You know. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody that is listening can relate to that. Like there's just something in your life you don't feel aligned in, right? And it's it's not that you needed to know what has transpired all the way till today to take that first step, right? You were just kind of following your curiosity and, and little breadcrumbs here and there. I'll just follow my brother on this. But I do remember when I heard you speak live, you were talking about, you know, and then you started to run and then you entered a, an ultra marathon. And didn't you go and like win the first ultra marathon that you ran. Can you tell us that story? (laughs) Yes, that's a crazy story. So what's so crazy about that is 
Okay, by the time I found out about that race, which I found out about, it's called the Yukon Arctic Ultra. And it takes place every February, obviously, in the Yukon. I read about this race in a magazine. uh, I can't remember. I think it was Explorer Magazine. And I read about this race in my chiropractor's office. Now, at this point in 2003, by this point, I've been racing mountain bikes, like literally everywhere. I was um, adventure racing. I was climbing. I was doing all these different sports, but it really wasn't much of a trail runner. My brother was an amazing trail runner, is an amazing trail runner. And I started, you know, so I picked up this magazine. I was intrigued by the article because it was sort of something that my brother might like. And I'm kind of reading it. And I'm thinking, I ain't my dig, dig it. I'm going to read this article while I'm sitting here. And, you know, tell him about it. And I, I was, I just became automatically captivated by the stories that were in this about these people doing this crazy race in the Yukon. And I thought, mm-hmm. Jesus, this is incredible. How can these people do this? And what blew my mind was, you know, there was different distances in the race, but I was focused in on the hundred mile race. So like just, it was a number that I could neatly wrap my head around in the fact that it was like four marathons, basically. Right. I mean, short slightly, but almost four marathons. So I'm thinking, oh my God, that's ridiculous. Right. And the more I read and the more fascinated I became and I decided I want to know what these people know that in the pages of the magazine, they looked like fairly normal people, but they were obviously doing something <laughs> very extraordinary. And I'm thinking something doesn't add up here. Like, what is it they know about themselves to be able to go and do something like this? And I figured, hey, what the hell? I'm in good shape. I'll try it. And so I entered it after reading this article. And um, I mean, literally, I spent every dime I had to go and do that race. You know, long and sort of the punchline of the entire story is that, yeah, it was my very first running race of any kind. I'd never done a formal running race. I'd done tons of adventure racing, Eco Challenge Qualifier, Raid the North, all these different races where you spend like 24 or 48 hours on your feet, but you're bushwhacking or you're, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. running a hundred miles, right? And so I entered this thing with no expectations of myself other than I'd spent every penny I had to get there. And I'd be damned if I would leave that place without learning something that I felt I would learn in doing this from what I saw on the pages of the magazine, right? Like I just wanted to know what everybody else knew. And I mean, so many, as you, you've heard the story before, but so many times when I wanted to quit and drop out and I, like I questioning my motives for being there, what I'm doing, what the hell am I doing there? The whole nine yards, I end up finishing the, crossing the finish line first. And for me, it was a strange, the strangest sensation because, you know, obviously we're not talking about numbers of the New York City Marathon or anything like that, right? Like we're talking about, I don't know how many people in all of the distances, but if I was to guess, maybe 50 people in total. But but what it was, was a disbelief in myself that I had the ability not only to finish something like this, but to win something like this. And it was almost like an imposter syndrome, right? When I finished and the and the race director, you know, he came down to the finish line. He met me there. He's like the only person there. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I when I tell people the story, I, it usually makes them laugh. But I thought for sure when I crossed the finish line, everybody had already left, right? But in fact, <laughs> welcome and to a hundred miles. You made it in hours, right? And I, yeah. well, in the middle of the night, you crash for a few hours, or sorry, in my case, I think I crashed for like literally five ten minutes on the trail. 
um, people pass you, right? Like you don't know what mm -hmm. the hell's going on. So I thought for sure it was one of those scenarios, but no, here I was. And I remember talking with them and thinking, like literally it's the most surreal thing because I'm, I'm talking to this guy and I'm thinking, Ooh, okay, you better figure out where you took a wrong turn. Cause there's no way you deserve to be here first. <laughs> oh my you know what I mean? Yes. Like yes. We, we do these things with ourselves and we yeah. underestimate we, we, as human beings, you know, it's natural in some ways for us to underestimate ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, but you know, being confident or um, achieving the things we want to achieve or experiencing our own version of extraordinary, it takes, it takes resilience and it takes a belief in oneself. And, and like, you got to kind of like stick your neck out there once in a while and be proud of the things or be confident in the things that you're doing. And that moment taught me that. And that in fact, yeah, you're damn right. I did this. I mean, there, it was impossible to take a wrong turn by the way, but yeah, <laughs> I did this thing. and here's the problem. Also, I didn't know how I did it. So I ended up, that's what started my ultra running career. The finish line of the Yukon crossing the finish line. I felt so amazing. Any pain that I had in the race or fear or inhibition or anything it was all gone. The guy, I remember crossing the finish line, feeling like a million bucks, thinking to myself, shit, I want to feel this way every day. Even if I'm just typing emails, I want to feel mm -hmm. that, that level of just like, you know, to infinity and beyond kind of thing. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. And so I wanted to feel that way. And so I thought, well, you know, how am I going to learn this? I'm going to learn it through ultra marathons. And that's what started it. And I saw, then I, I started doing these ultra marathons, you know, basically the type of ultra marathon that I liked, by the way, was the ones that involved adventure. I was drawn to that, you know, exotic locations that, you know, I'd only read about in, in national geographic or whatever. And these races would be in these places and it involved navigation or it involved heat or cold, or it involved carrying mm. a backpack and right. my food. I loved that style of ultra running races. So those were the ones I focused in on. And I did several races between that, that Yukon and the time when I did, you know, until we started running the Sahara. It sounds almost like that is what launched you into everything that's come afterwards, right? It's that initial like, holy shit, I just did something that I didn't realize that I could do. And of course, you've gone on to do some absolutely mind-blowing adventures that I'm hoping that maybe you can uh, regale us with stories from, from some of those. But I guess my question is, do you ever revisit that initial Yukon ultra marathon in your mind and remind yourself like I can do hard things I can do things that I never believed that I could do in the first place and has that I guess lesson stuck with you in some of the other adventures that you've done you know Carolyn I would love to say that that's the way it is but it's it's not I, I wish I was that complicated but I'm not <laughs> you know I, I operate you know my wife would probably agree with this completely I operate very simply and I think the collective of our experiences rehardwires how we work and how we think about things. And so I rarely reflect on past experiences, successes. Instead, I take lessons from each thing that I'm doing. And I never forget those specific lessons, very specific things like don't use this ski wax or, <laughs> you know, tie my laces this way. 
And these right. subtleties, you know, change as a collective who I am and what I do now. So rather than looking back at that to gain strength or anything in something hard that I'm doing, I instead in the moment, I'm in the moment of an expedition that's very difficult or I'm doing something that's very difficult or dealing with something that's very difficult. And I become, have become a sum of the parts. So mm -hmm. I am able to sort of go on autopilot and deal with what it is that's in front of me and that I need to deal with without any sort of, um, you know, complicated procedure. And I think that everybody has that ability to do that. The kids and I, we love to watch these. They love to watch these home reno shows, right? And you watch <laughs> them and they're like, these people are slapping this stuff together, like putting up walls and building things. And they make it look so easy. You know, during the pandemic, I had to, I had to actually saw a few boards to fix our, fix our deck because I couldn't get anyone. You can't get anyone during the pandemic, right, to come fix anything at your house. And I literally almost cut my thumb off in the process of trying to, like, I'm so not handy. But you watch people, you know, whether it's decorating a cake, making a painting, running an ultra marathon, or building a house, right? Mm -hmm. And you watch them do their thing. And it just seems to flow naturally. There's a flow state. And I think they get used to it because they've built 50 houses. And by the time they're building 51, throwing up a wall, you don't even think yeah. about it. You just yeah. go. Yeah. yeah. Right. So probably those lessons are like just integrated. They're in, in, they're a part of you at this point. Not that you're consciously thinking about it or reflecting or recalling them all the time, but they're part of you and you're bringing them forward into your next adventure. So can you tell us, I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about every single adventure that you've been on, but does anything kind of stand out as a favorite or a most memorable one that you want to share with us? Well, there's been so many. Um, honestly, you'd have to almost drill down on a specific, but I, you know, I would say, how about a theme? Well, let's, start, you know, throw some themes at me. I mean, I, okay, and I so yeah, let's, let's talk about Baffin Island. I've been curious about Baffin Island because as I was doing my research, you know, on you for this podcast, it just, it comes up over and over mm -hmm. and over. And I think how many times have you, have you been there now? 10, nine yeah, or 10? Yeah, I've crossed, 10? I've crossed a specific region of Baffin Island 10 times, but I've been in other areas as well. Right. right. On Baffin. So what is it about that place? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this about the Canadian, the Canadian Arctic is amazing. People ask me all the time, where's the most beautiful place you've ever seen? I've been in, I don't know, 90, a hundred countries and very, very remote places over, you know, getting close to 20,000 kilometers now on foot wow. in all of these areas on the planet. And that specific area of Baffin Island is literally one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful place on the planet. Not only that, combine that with the fact that I have many friends up there that I've been doing stuff with for years. And so whether I'm there with Impossible to Possible with our youth expeditions, or I'm doing one of my expeditions in that region of Baffin is a component of an expedition. It's just, it's the one place, there's very few places that I go twice. Like Example, I crossed the entire Atacama Desert in summer 2011. It's the driest place on earth in Chile. And I ran the length of it. So 1,200 kilometers. I would never run the length of that desert again. It's beautiful, amazing. But I've been back to that desert 13, 14 times in various areas, small sections, specific regions 
um, guiding clients or youth ambassadors on expeditions or whatever, or just to visit, but not doing the entire expedition. There's only been two places where I've completely repeated projects, and that's Baffin Island and Death Valley in California. Mm. And both of them- Very different places. Strikingly different. So Baffin (laughs) Island, that region of Baffin in the middle of January is about as cold on the planet as you can possibly get. You know, at that time of year, it's the coldest place, literally one of the coldest places on earth. Death Valley, when I typically do my projects there in July and August, is the hottest place on earth, as you know. So, you know, there's also that really weird contrast there. But look, even going beyond the beauty of Baffin and the amazing friends I have up there and and I've learned so that I've learned so much from about cold weather expeditions, you know, cold expeditions, I do the cold and the heat differently. Cold expeditions, I'm typically self-contained or completely unsupported, either solo or with a teammate. And we have everything we absolutely need to survive in its absolute towed behind us in sleds. Then when I do the desert expeditions, I go as long as I can without a resupply. And I figured that number out to be on average about 30 kilometers. I can carry enough water and still run or move quickly through a desert and mountains and valleys and everything else without a resupply. But in 50 plus degrees Celsius heat, that's about as long as I can go. And I can manage about 70K a day to 80K a day when I'm carrying a heavier pack and running with it and blah, 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 blah in the heat. Mm -hmm. So specific stories. I mean, look at, you know, being in the Namib desert, um, that one was 1,850 kilometers. I did that with Stefano Gregoretti from Italy. And I can remember specifically, you know, us having to cross a canyon, this huge canyon, and it would be a full day of going without resupply. Extraordinarily hot, but it was the only way that we could do our expedition in a continuous line, we had to cross this canyon. And so we dropped down the really steep walls of this canyon and it's blistering hot. And I mean, literally had to be, I think we measured around 52 degrees Celsius down in that canyon. But there was a convective effect too, because it was a canyon and the way that the rocks were just radiating heat onto us. Anyhow, we're going along and we're, there's pools of water because we were near a dry river and there would be these pools of putrid water. We were, we were filtering this water, which was oh, terrible, but we needed <laughs> the water. We'd run it. You can only carry so much. Like I told you, if you, get, you get beyond a point where you just can't carry because you're moving so slow and expending so much energy to carry such a heavy pack. There's no point in even leaving, you know? So you have to like, it's a balancing act of risk and weight and all the other things. So we're filtering this water and Stefano happens to glance up along one of these canyon walls and he sees a troop of baboons. And let me tell you, there's a lot of scary animals out there, right? But baboons (laughs) are especially freaky because they are staring at you and you do not look back at them. Like you don't look them in the eye. And they just were following us and they followed us that whole day across that canyon Meanwhile, I'm surprised that neither one of us didn't fill our shorts because, I mean, it was terrifying. <laughs> if, those, if those baboons wanted to, they would take you down to shreds within seconds. Mm-hmm. But eventually, we had to climb out the other end of the canyon, and they just kind of lost interest in us at that point. Right. But it was, it was sketchy for sure, you know? Oh my gosh. Wow. So that's yeah. a good example of how you're navigating not just your own internal environment on these expeditions, but all the external stuff as well. So I know, you know, really quickly, I know you've been asked this question a million times, which do you like better, the heat or the cold? I'm going to try to ask in a different way. 
Which one do you find most challenging? And is that actually the one that draws you the most? I'm just wondering, or are they equal in your eyes? Well, you know what? It's it's interesting that you would ask it that way. I look and I do prefer the heat. And I find the older I get too, maybe that's something. But I do prefer the heat to the cold. Um, but I do, you're, you're right. I love the challenge of the cold. I was having coffee the other day with literally one of the greatest mentors and very close friends of mine that I've had an adventure, a man named Richard Weber, who's arguably one of the greatest polar explorers that ever lived. And we've done stuff together. We went to the South Pole together in 2009 with another buddy of mine, Kevin. And uh, God, we had so many laughs on that trip. That was crazy. But, you know, he knows what the Canadian Arctic is like in winter. It's brutal. And we laugh because he is like a popsicle in heat. He melts in the heat, whereas I freeze my ass off. I complain about it the entire time, but I love being there because I love the sky. In the Canadian Arctic in winter, or Siberia, or any of these Arctic, you know, northern hemisphere winter expeditions I've done, the sun only cracks the horizon for a few hours. And when it does... It's so cold that the snow crystals are standing on end, basically. So when that sun comes up on that low angle, it reflects across the snow in the sky. And I swear the landscape looks like a light hue of purple. It's the mm. most magical time of year to be in the Arctic. So when that sun pops up, and when I see that, I stop complaining for a couple of minutes. I'm like, okay, this is totally why I'm here. Like, this yes. is why I'm here at this time yes. of year, right? And I love the challenge, as you said, as well. Extreme heat, though, oof, I have been close to dying so many times in hot deserts and hot places on this planet. Like, I've had a lot of close calls. But again, I love being in the desert, and it's most deserty. And that means being there in the summer to really experience it, you know? Well, something that um, I read on your social media that really, I think, drives this point home is, um, and I won't read the whole thing, but it's just one of your one of your posts, you say, I think it's the uncertainty that I love so much. I love doing things I'm never really totally 100% sure that I can finish. I absolutely love being on an unpredictable adventure. So... On this podcast, we talk about more than just our running, right? Like running is almost that metaphor for life, right? When we know we can do hard things in our running, we we then have that belief that we can do hard things in our life. And so I'm wondering if you've taken any of those lessons from that you've learned in your epic adventures over into your life. And if you've ever experienced something super challenging in your life that you, again, draw on, on your experience here. Yeah, you know, I... Um... We all, we, everybody faces challenges in their lives and the challenges that we face, whether it's in, you know, work, business, family, whatever, health, it's all relative to each person as an individual. So your individual experience, you can't necessarily compare to anyone else. So like I said before, where I am with my expeditions, making decisions, whatever, it's a sum of parts, right? And you know, just like the positive, the great thing, like the, the greatest things that we achieve in our lives are relative to us as individuals as well. I've, I've said that. And I, True. just to quickly explain, you know, when I finished running the Sahara 7,500 kilometers and, and we reached the edge of the Red Sea, I had people asking me after that expedition, because at that time in 2007, when we did that, people were like, 
That's not possible. Our landscape of what's possible in our minds collectively has changed. You know, it's different now all these years later than it was then. But at any rate, then people were like, no, it's not possible. And they'd say to me, well, what did it feel like to do that? Like when you, when you guys hit, hit the Red Sea, what did it feel like to reach the Red Sea? I said, you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what it felt like. The first training run I did when I was trying to get ready for the Yukon and cram some stuff in. And a buddy of mine who's no longer alive at the time, an amazing ultra runner, was trying to teach me how to pace myself and da, da, da. And I had this amazing fitness, amazing fitness. But I'll never forget the run I went with him. And I ran seven kilometers. It was a loop by my apartment at that point in Chelsea. And I didn't have to take a walk break. Like, although I was super fit, running was different than mountain biking and all these other things I did. So seven kilometers in this loop. And I never had to like stop and do a quick stretch or whatever. And I remembered reaching the door and thinking, wow, like for seven kilometers, although I've biked for hundreds in races, but for seven kilometers on my feet, mm-hmm. I got from this door back to this door. Like, that's a cool thing. When I reached the edge of the Red Sea, I felt exactly the same. There was no difference. Mm-hmm. So when people say to me, well, you know, I ran 5K and, uh, well, that doesn't, you wouldn't understand. It's, uh, that, that's nothing to you. I say, no, it's everything to me because we are all achieving similar things in life. It's how we internalize and what we feel we're going through in our lives, both positive and negative. I hope that's not too word salady. Mm, that's no, that's where no. that comes down. Um, you know, obviously, I made a post the other day about you know going through this whole lymphoma thing and 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 feeling like you know crap. And um, look at like I said in my post, I'm very fortunate to have something that's treatable. It's rare the version I have, but it's treatable. And very treatable, hugely positive prognosis in my case. Um, but I felt horrible before I went in to start getting treatment. The treatment is brutal, but, you know, I sort of know, I think I know, and I mean, that could change month to month, kind of how I'm going to feel through it. And I was out running with my wife today and we ran, uh, so, you know, I did chemotherapy, uh, when was it, like two weeks ago. And we were out for a run, and I remembered feeling amazing for the first kilometer and a half that we ran of our three-kilometer run. And we were up on the trails, and I was breathing really well. And I said, oh, my God, I don't think I've breathed like this in a really long time. Like, I feel fantastic. And I said, you know, six months ago, if I said I was going to go out, you know, and I was supposed to do a 20K training run and I could only get five in, maybe I wouldn't have gone because maybe something silly in my brain would have said, there's no point. It's not worth it, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm so grateful to get out there at this point in the process and get three good kilometers feeling like a million bucks. So I know there's going to be good days and bad days. There's going to be ups and downs. I'm very grateful that I have something, though, that is nowhere near as serious as other friends of mine have gone through with other various types of cancer. But it has, nonetheless, relative to my life, a massive impact on my life. For sure. But I am fully mentally prepared right now to deal with that over the course of the next, well, I got five months to go. And uh, I'm going to do what it takes. I'll tell you something. I'm not going to stop doing things. 
I'm going to be living my life and I'm going to be, and I have big projects on the horizon. And am I going to be healthy enough to do them in these next five months? Maybe, maybe not. And if I'm not, then I'll deal with that then. But I think that it's how we look at things in our lives. And again, in our lives, relatively, it's how it feels to you, you know, and what you're going through, that's the most important. And what it means in your mind, in your home, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, we speak a lot on this podcast about holding two things at once. And you just spoke about holding gratitude, that relative to other people, you're very grateful that you've got a treatable form of cancer. On the other hand, yeah, it sucks. It's definitely affected your life in a way you you didn't expect. And um, definitely, I can see some of the life lessons and, you know, things you've learned over the years you're, you're bringing forward as you go through this next phase. Well, as Carolyn asked, you know, like, so what, you know, how do you apply? Exactly. Um, you know, what you've learned in expeditions. Well, again, and I go back to what I said earlier in our conversation where it's sort of an autopilot, you know, I, I cannot help yeah. since the age of 30 and doing the things that I get to do in my life looking at the world with like and 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 everything in it that I'm dealing with with the glass not even half full but overflowing. So um I've learned from expeditions that there's process in life. Everything, every single thing we do in our lives has a process. Sometimes the process is easy. Like, okay, I'm gonna make coffee this morning. So I put this many scoops of coffee and I put this much water and then bing, out the machine comes my coffee and I have a great cup of coffee. That's a process. And then there's complicated processes, right? Like what I'm dealing with right now or raising our kids or whatever we're doing. It's, it's more complicated, but it's always a process. Expeditions, you know, and adventure have taught me when I'm doing things in very dangerous places at dangerous times of year, there is a process to follow. Mm -hmm. And if you don't follow the process, you know, the risks are even higher and bad things can happen. And I've had bad things happen. And from those bad things happening, I've learned to respect the process, yeah. plan, make changes and adapt. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So Ray, you have shown a tremendous passion for youth as evidenced by, you know, how you've involved schools and youth in your expeditions and in your charity, Impossible to Possible. Can you tell us a little bit more about why, why that is so important to you? Well, you know what, because I remembered being, um, I remember what it felt like to be a teenager. You know, I remember what it felt like, uh, you know, sitting in school, you know, and constantly getting D's. I mean, thank goodness I was in the days of pre-computers where I think that they would basically scribble in a mark to get rid of you. I mean, literally, right? I was one of those kids. I barely got out of high school. And, um, you know, I so I, what I remembered the most in school was that I just had no desire to learn. Like it was the strangest thing, right? And so when I ran across the Sahara and through ultra running, but especially when we ran across the Sahara, I realized that through the course of an adventure, I was learning about multiple subjects. Like as we ran across the Sahara, we learned obviously about the water crisis in North Africa. I learned about how a documentary film gets made, right? All the pieces mm -hmm. that are happening behind the scenes, right? I learned about everything ranging from mathematics, agriculture, uh, economics, healthcare. All of these things were subjects that I learned about through our journey across North Africa. And when we finished the expedition, I'd said to my wife, Kathy, you know, I really want to do something that gives youth an opportunity to learn because I became a voracious learner. 
when I was on this expedition. Maybe we can, you know, take that and create a model whereby which students are able to go to an amazing place, be on it like a limit pushing adventure, and then teach a subject, learn about a subject and teach what they're learning to students in schools all over the world. And so Bob Cox, a very close friend of mine, we met in 2007 and we decided to start this organization Impossible to Possible. And since then, we've done 15, 16 Impossible to Possible youth expeditions to literally the remotest parts of the world, studying subjects like biodiversity in the central Amazon. Uh, we went to, back to the Sahara, to Tunisia to study uh, water. We've studied uh, ecosystem services in, I think that was Peru. We, I mean, health access to healthcare in Rajasthan in the Thar Desert. Fascinating. Um, you know, we've just done so many projects. Every one of the expeditions is 100% free. And so it's free for our youth ambassadors going, free for the schools participating in the online content, and free for our uh, volunteer staff. And all of us are uh, volunteers in the organization. We're not actually paid to do what we do with Impossible Possible. So that's what I2P is. It's U.S. charity has been since 2007, 8, and Canadian nonprofit. And we just keep, you know, bumping along and doing these projects. We have another big one that we're going to announce, you know, our first, we did a smaller post-pandemic one, I think it was last fall. We took a couple of youth ambassadors up into um, the mountains in Quebec, but, you know, we had to move quickly and safely and in a very enclosed environment because of COVID. But now with things opening up, um, we're really excited to do really big expeditions again, youth expeditions. So we're going to announce on November, November 22nd, uh, our next I2P youth expedition. Carolyn and I are winking at each other because we've both got teenage boys that we think would be amazing. Well, you know what? I'll tell you, they'll be able to apply in Jan, I think in January and I don't, I don't get to pick the kids. So there you go. Like they're, they're picked by, a group of people in in the organization and for uh, like the, a conglomerate of former youth ambassadors. I just think it's so amazing what you're doing, because, again, you started this story by saying, you know, I wasn't like the stellar student, like I didn't really have I wasn't engaged and didn't want to like necessarily learn that way, like in a classroom. And yet you put yourself out in nature and boom, there's your classroom and you've learned so much since then. And I think that's so true for all of us, right? Like we need to be in the right environment to learn our best. And so I'm curious if you ever hear from some of the kids that have gone on your expeditions, oh. like many years later, like, can you share uh, like one story that stands out from, from somebody that it had an impact on? They're literally, there's so many of these youth ambassadors. I mean, some of them now are famous ultra runners and some of them are really you know we have a road scholar we have scientists we have firefighters we have fly fishermen we have i mean i just thinking off the police officers we have all sorts of amazing youth ambassadors that have gone on to do amazing things i think you know one story just thinking of it and they're all equal but one that i'm thinking of right now that's really cool is there was a youth ambassador named Val Gagne who came with us to a youth expedition we did incidentally in the Atacama Desert in 20, I think it was 2015 we did that one. And it was about astronomy. Anyhow, um, 
she said, stayed on board. Many of them do volunteer. Many have been on next youth expeditions volunteering. And so she'd been helping out for quite some time. Then eventually when we started guiding our guiding company with Capic One, she had the experience guiding because she had done some guiding previously for another, uh, you know, company. And so she joined us and started guiding for us. And now Val and I are doing uh, our own Arctic expedition this January, a very difficult project. So youth ambassador that, you know, started out doing yes. an expedition is now we're doing an expedition together as teammates, you know, That's our own so expedition cool. in January. So it's really exciting. That is amazing. Well, Ray, you've um, shared so much with us in this time that we spent together. We really appreciate chatting with you. We know that you are headed off, I believe, tomorrow to the desert again. Is that correct? Yes. So I'm I, with Capic One. We have a group of amazing people that are supporting Impossible to Possible through their, you know, I guess you would call it expedition fees to come and join us on a Capic One expedition in the Atacama Desert. It's really exciting. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so I would normally be guiding, um, running 20 to 30 kilometers, navigating across the desert as we go. But obviously right now, because I'm dealing with this nasty thing inside me. So I'm going to be going and I'm going to be supporting. And some of the other members of our team are going to be doing the guiding and I'll be there to cheer everyone on and maybe run 5k a day if I can, you know, maybe I'll push myself and do 10, who knows? And, uh, yeah, that's my goal. It's just to be there. That's amazing. Well, given your recent challenges, you sound so buoyant and so upbeat. And it sounds so cliche on a show called Inspired Souls Podcast to use the word, you're such an inspiration, but you really are. And thank you for taking the time to share with us today. And good luck with everything that um, is coming up for you in the future. Well, thank you both so much. And it was really exciting to be on here with you. And I can't wait to hear it when it goes live. <laughs>